sisters who with their lives and struggles plowed the spirit and the strength of what we now call eco-socialism. Masimulize yake story Zimetukata mori Kutungo kwa minyororo Eti ndo mwanzo wa safari Safari ya my story Sio story Ni story za ukoloni Zinazo ni picture mimi Zinazo ni picture chini Nisiamini Ule wezo na ujuzi Kabla karne ishirini Mama kusi simtamini Asili kasukumwa nyuma kwa siri shuleni Mazingira elio zinga Ni kisanga kuja pinga Nani atatukinga Tatuchunga Tumetusi wakunga Kwa kubuya na kudunga Mifumwe metufunga Na huu moja umetutenga Kama karata mezeni Na bidi upia kuj Africa to diaspora turudi mezani kuja panga Kabla huyu kipanga kuja kupita na vipa branka Welcome to the Decolonial Learning Session number 14 The topic of today is how Western imperialism is driving the climate catastrophe So a few words of what we mean by that. Nearly a billion people have no access whatsoever to electricity, while the rich are embarking on space trips and fantasize about colonizing Mars. Yet the climate crisis is not just marked by economic inequality, it is marked by imperialism. 92% of the climate catastrophe engulfing the planet is caused by the global north, robbing formerly colonized countries of the atmospheric space required to ensure humane living standards. To make matters worse, every year, immense amount of resources and labor power are drained from the global north, from the global south to the global north, to maintain a wasteful consumption lifestyle that is killing the planet. So to talk about all of this uh, with us here is Max Isle. He is the author of the critically acclaimed book, A People's Green New Deal, which scrutinizes the most famous Green New Deal proposals and offers an eco-socialist and anti-imperialist alternative. Max is associated researcher with the Tunisian Observatory for Food Sovereignty and the Environment, associate editor at the Agrarian South, and postdoctoral fellow with the Rural Sociology Group at Wageningen University. So um, I want to thank you, Max, for joining us today. And um, I want to dive straight in. Um, so your book, A People's Green New Deal, you they argue that uh, anti-imperialism is crucial to any real socialist climate program. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that program uh, soon enough. But first, I want to um, kind of touch on the basics. So you explain, I want you to explain why Western imperialism is actually driving the climate catastrophe and not, for example, uh, as some people might say, China, who is uh, the largest global emitter of fossil fuel emissions today. So when, when we look at the climate crisis, we can't just look uh, empirically or uh, positivist, positivistically at exactly how many emissions are emerging from each geographical, territorial, national space at any given moment. Uh, this tells us only physically, really, what is driving the climate crisis. But this doesn't really tell us in terms of the imperial class relations about what has historically driven the climate crisis and what a just resolution versus an unjust resolution to the climate crisis would be. So this is actually a basic principle that uh, is, is actually the long fruit of decolonization itself, right? Decolonization was a process of, at least in the formal juridical and to some extent substantive sense of saying that peoples uh, and they would become uh, sovereign and would be on a level plane of equality within uh, the international state system and all the various forms of economic covenants, uh, 
international uh, organizations like the UN and so forth that uh, were constructed in order to uh, reflect this kind of new balance of, of power within the inter interstate system. And of course, uh, a lot of what I'm going to say is going to reflect the limits, of course, of those achievements. But that doesn't undermine that those were actually uh, achievements and those are and furthermore achievements that have been uh, besieged and uh, have, they've been trying to roll back since the uh, great age of decolonization, especially since uh, the fall of the USSR. Now, one of the achievements has been uh, since 1992 at the Rio summit, what was agreed upon basically in the international convenings was this idea of, of, of common but differentiated responsibility. It's a, a tough phrase, but what it means is, is that there's a common responsibility to deal with uh, all these sorts of shared ecological crises, whether these are having to do uh, with um, excess emissions, they have to do with excess methane, or they have to deal with deforestation. Really, any ecological problem is, uh, is increasingly global in scope, uh, so therefore there's a common responsibility, especially because each country has to do something about it, but it's differentiated because responsibility is allocated uh, along uh, axes of uh, colonialism, class, nation, and so forth, as well as, of course, internally within nations. Uh, inequalities of class, gender, uh, national questions, internal national minority questions, and so forth. So when, when that was applied to the climate question, what was agreed upon is that the North uh, basically had usurped the cheap atmospheric space uh, and the, the cheap the, that could be used for the waste product of uh, cheap and readily accessible energy sources in order to build up its infrastructure and achieve uh, this complicated outcome that we call development, right? So they could burn up coal, they could burn up oil, they could burn up natural gas at extremely high rates, uh, as well as contributing heavily to, to deforestation and so forth, um, and the destruction of soils with uh, attendant carbon fluxes. Now, those are very... Uh, Fossil fuels are really unique and probably can't be replicated, at least in the short to medium term, in terms of their energetic efficiency. When you burn it, it's, it's compressed uh, carbon matter from the past that you can just burn it up and use energy. You basically uh, are adding free labor. You're adding the photosynthetic energy of the past. And you're getting this free labor uh, and that, that you get a much more productive, from a certain perspective, industrial plant. And this allows you to achieve development. Now, this was path is simply not available anymore to the South, because if the South uh, burns the same amount of fossil fuels that the North burnt on its road to industrialization, it would be an absolute disaster, right? The, we would go probably to three, four degrees Celsius. Civilization would, uh, what there is of it, would, would collapse. We would not anymore have complicated modern forms of life. Uh, on the planet, right? So this is just, uh, it's, it's not feasible. Now there's two reactions to that, right? The reaction to the North is basically, uh, and this is what is, I'm gonna elaborate upon later. The North's reaction is basically to say, in the words of Todd Stern, who was Barack Obama's climate envoy in 2009 at Copenhagen, he said, we totally accept the historical fact of our excess use of atmospheric space and uh, use of cheap emissions pathways and so forth, but we categorically reject any responsibility for it. Uh, then from uh, then the South, basically the radicalized states of the South in that period, uh, 
Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, uh, blocked that from becoming international law and international covenant, covenant at, at Copenhagen, and basically said, we need to put forth an alternative proposal, which basically says that, in fact, because the North has usurped the atmospheric space of the South, as well as imposing damages, and all of this within the longer history of looting that is colonialism, therefore, uh, the South, the North actually owes a debt to the South, right? So these are actually totally juxtaposed. One totally rejects history and another accepts history uh, and accepts responsibility for history in the process of building a just and eco-socialist world. Thanks, Max. So um, I think basically to summarize uh, we see that um, there's a huge amount of emissions from the global north, and I, I, I mentioned a figure at the intro, 92%, Jason Hickel, which basically uses a very simple metric saying, like, uh, if you don't want to have more than one degree Celsius warming, uh, and we would give every country equal amount of emissions per capita, so, you know, every human being can emit the same amount. Uh, then what you're in excess of that, that's what your global south there have excess emissions are actually allies of the north, like the Gulf monarchies, uh, etc. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and the question is how we deal with that. Um, you, you mentioned um, in your response, uh, Max, that we cannot just look also at these um, uh, emissions that happen within national borders. Uh, we need to take um, account of uh, imperial class relations, basically. Um, I'm thinking you're hinting there at international production chains. Can you can you explain um, exactly what you mean? Like who, who's actually profiting from these emissions in China, for example? Right. So I think there, I think there's two two aspects of it. I mean, the first aspect is that, in fact, uh, my own take disagrees with uh, the IPCC part aspects of both Hickel and uh, this the more common idea of. Uh, historical per capita uh, emissions in that I, I think more and more, and I, I didn't make the point clearly enough in the book for those of you who read the book, uh, because my thinking on it has changed a little bit since then, but the national liberation question has to be the primary question in, in dealing with the climate crisis. And national liberation is about uh, not national sovereignty. It's about uh, the right of a people to have sovereign control over its international productive forces. And that includes the political or other means required to both achieve the control over their national productive forces and put them to the use of the population, and also uh, the need to defend uh, their development, their sovereign development of the national productive forces. So what that means is militarization, right? So a lot of the emissions from the Soviet bloc, and even uh, in a different way, in a much more complicated way, and I, I don't have a full position on this, uh, the emissions from China are related to defensive industrialization. Uh, this is something that's been totally written out of Western historiography of China and the USSR, but the reason they industrialized, and it was constant in the rhetoric of the Soviet planners, and also uh, Mao talked about it a great deal. They were encircled by uh, capitalist states. They were, uh, you know, Stalin was well aware that Germany was rearming. They eventually made very good use of that industrial plan to fuck up the Nazis. Um, so this is something that uh, was imposed upon them by Western capitalism with its history of colonialism and its tendencies towards fascism. This level of industrialization with its attendant emissions was imposed upon. This is a, this is small, a bit of a footnote, but I think it's 
important for us to keep in mind who, who believe in eco-socialism. There's a need for countries uh, that are building eco-socialism to be able to defend themselves from the West, which has, well, has zero reservations about leveling countries uh, that even uh, whether or not they're building eco-socialism, they could be building uh, non-eco and, and non-socialism and just this uh, kind of national capitalism, the US will level them also. So this is an important issue, right? And something that's very frequently lost in the Western discussion. Uh, you know, and I think it's it's clear in the present moment, furthermore. Now, th then there's the question of China, right? Which is uh, a, a complicated case in that uh, the, the profits from Chinese emissions Right, the, the territorial emissions that occur um, in China are to a substantial extent linked to capital that accrues to Western corporations that have offshored production to China over the last 40 years since the so-called uh, Chinese opening up, or it's contained opening up to, uh, to global capitalism. Um, actually, a lot of this is reflected in, for example, the Hickel calculations. So this is reflected in the radical literature, but it's something to keep in mind when we hear these claims about Western countries. And I think it's used a lot for um, um, uh, Northern European countries, England, there are claims that economic growth is being decoupled from uh, emissions. To, to, a large extent, to, the, to a large extent, the truth of that is based on the fact that emissions are actually offshored to China, even though the, the, the profit from uh, the emissions being offshored to China and also increasingly to um, Philippines, Bangladesh, uh, Vietnam, uh, of course, Mexico and uh, North Africa and so forth. All of that, uh, the capital basically flows to the north. It's just northern corporations going over there with their capital uh, and um, exploiting the comparative advantage of those countries, which is uh, cheap and often highly trained labor force. Uh, and of course, this is more complicated in the Chinese case because they retain control over their developmental process in a much stronger way than most of these other countries. But this is also the other aspect that's, that's very important to keep in mind is that uh, we need to keep track of who continues to benefit from these ongoing initiatives. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I think this also plays into the, into the land question. Um, you have this, uh, um, this way of accounting within the UN, um, again, a kind of territorial way of, of accounting for deforestation. Uh, which I think is very problematic because we we don't actually look at the long historical uh, deforestation that happened uh, within the U.S. and within Europe. But even on a more basic level, like a lot of these countries, uh, like Indonesia, for example, they didn't colonize half a continent, so they don't have the same amount of land available. Maybe you could speak to that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's several aspects of it. You know, the forest cover has actually been getting uh, partially restored, for example, uh, in Europe and the United States, while deforestation is proceeding rapidly uh, still in places like uh, Brazil and Indonesia. And this is very much related to the fact that the production chains, for example, for palm oil or for soy, which is then uh, some exported uh, from Brazil, either fed to animals or used uh, to a lesser extent used for human consumption. I mean, these are part of Northern uh, monopoly capitalist production chains, right? Um, and this is a major thing is that they, they are being used for, um, they, they're being used for the benefit of Northern profit. And also for, it's important to keep in mind for the benefit of uh, Northern social pact, which is structured in certain ways around 
a certain uh, northern middle class consumption, which is how northern populations are woven into the social compact, which also, also accounts for why so much there's so much northern uh, popular support, unfortunately, for a lot of northern wars, right? It's because there's a decision to make uh, ide a class alliance, which is reflected at the ideological and political level with the ruling class in those countries, right? And this is something we need to understand. It's not permanent, it's not a fixed kind of, uh, it's not a it's not a fixed aspect of the political and social landscape, but it is something we're dealing with at the moment, especially if we want to resist it, right? Um, the other aspect is that there, the, the benefits of uh, forests, I mean, Archana Prasad has written about this among other people, forest products flow from south to north, right? And this is uh, all kinds of forest project, uh, products. This is, uh, of course, the, the benefits of deforestation, this flows to the north, but also forest products themselves, uh, especially wood. There's a massive wood trade from the south to the north, uh, not from the north to the south, right? And in fact, the work of Jason Moore has been fantastic on this, showing that uh, the industrialization of, uh, the initial industrialization, for example, of Britain was very much linked to uh, wood trade from the Baltics and so forth, which is the original uh, European periphery, right? So the West, in fact, has been a net ab absorber of uh, forest products from the entire world, yet, uh, these national accounts show that, uh, you know, show uh, reduce the historical responsibility of the West for uh, deforestation. So this is a major, major, major issue. I mean, another uh, aspect of this, I think, that is critical to um, to keep in mind is that, in fact, the the national accounts that uh, are used in general for responsibility for CO2 and also for forests don't reflect the fact that these countries were not, uh, they, they treat the colonial countries as, as sovereign territories, right? So they, they themselves don't reflect uh, the colonial experience. Now, of course, all of this would be a lot of work to account for, right? So it's not to say that it's very necessarily easy to build these databases, but this is also important to keep in mind is that the kind of databases that are built and the type of metrics we use are political, right? These are po political in two senses. I mean, they're political. Uh, first of all, they reflect the who makes the decision about where to allocate funding. They're like, oh, that's something we need to know. If it's something you need to know is a political question, right? So the fact that we don't know and aren't able to differentiate between uh, which, of the, which of the benefits of colonial production of timber and so forth uh, stayed in the country and which were responsibility of the North that's a political decision. The North doesn't isn't very interested in building databases that makes that visible for obvious reasons, right? There's a that part of the major problem uh, of our understanding of the world is that we don't uh, the colonial uh, underbelly of it is invisible and takes effort to make visible. Yeah, and uh, when we're talking about these databases, uh, I think there was a, a very interesting paper that recently came out. Uh, this was also Jason Hickel in Global Environmental Change. It's called Imperialist Appropriation in the World Economy, and he tries to kind of uh, put a figure on that appropriation of land, of labor, of energy, of resources. And I just wanted to flag up like two, two lines from that. Uh, just to give a sense of the, the scale uh, that we're talking about. Uh, he says that for instance, and he's talking now about the net appropriation of resources, energy and land from the south to the north. Um, and uh, to put it in perspective, 21 exajoules of energy would be enough to cover to ensure that all 6.5 billion people in the global south 
have access to decent housing, public transport, healthcare, education, sanitation, communication, etc. 822 million hectares of land, which is twice the size of India, would in theory be enough to provide nutritious food for up to 6 billion people. Depend really, really massive amounts of transfers from the global source, uh, south to the global north. Um, but um, I would like you maybe for, for the people who are less familiar with imperialism um, to uh, maybe explain a bit of the mechanisms, the economic mechanisms, how this works. So uh, the paper of Hickel, for example, speaks of unequal exchange, a concept that was pioneered by Samir Amin, uh, the Egyptian uh, economist, a political economist. Um, could you explain how, um, how that works? What is it, unequal exchange? Uh, what is debt dependency? Where does it come from? Uh, how does it work? Right, so to, to understand uh, uneven exchange, uh, you know, we, we need to start, uh, or we need to start, so of course, this is gonna be typical. We start with Marx, right? We end this idea of the distinction between use value and uh, exchange value. And this idea that um, goods don't necessarily exchange at their value. Right, which uh, might seem a wildly counterintuitive statement, right? But what, what it, it's basically saying that in international trade, um, the amount of labor that goes into a good is not necessarily reflected in the price of the good, right? It, things can trade at, uh, at prices that don't reflect their values and prices are politically engineered, right? So, if you have, if a wealthy country uh, produces, you know, uh, car engines and a poor country produces uh, coffee, it's in the interest of the wealthy. Uh, this is, I'm not quite getting into uneven exchange yet, but um, it's in the interests of the wealthy country to as much as possible increase the relative price of cars relative to coffee. So if at one given historical period, it can sell uh, basically one, the, the barter equivalent or like one, one car sells for say 10 bushels of coffee. If in the next year, one car can get 12 bushels of coffee, right? Uh, but the country, each country's production structure remains basically the same, uh, then, the country that produces cars is basically uh, doing uh, doing much better, especially if it's the case that it's increasing productivity more, right? So it's actually each labor hour in the North is actually receiving more products than a labor hour in the South, right? So this is another way of saying that labor at one labor hour in the North actually ends up with more buying power than two, three labor hours in the South. Right, and, and this is the essence of uneven exchange, it's especially in the, in the narrow sense, it's related to identical goods. Now that means basically that suppose you have a tire factory in uh, Amsterdam. I don't know if you guys have tire industry, industry in Amsterdam. Um, suppose you have a tire factory there and you have a tire factory in, uh, in Tunisia um, and they actually can produce the same amount of tires per hour. Uh, but the fact is that uh, the worker is going to get paid much more in the northern tire factory, even if they're producing the same amount of tires, right? And as a result, the northern country uh, will be able to buy more things on a world scale, right? This is also part of uh, uneven exchange, right? So there's a lot of 
what uneven exchange is one among several mechanisms that are used in order to make sure that more profit stays in the global north and that more value stays in the global north and that as a result accumulation and development are uneven right and so what that means you know quantitatively is for example if x if a certain number of things are produced in the world then that means people in the north have more access to those things right and now uh you know uh uh northern uh heterodox or classical economists will just be like, oh, that's because people in the North are more productive. Um, but right, so this is this is both wrong on its own terms and it forgets why countries in the North are more productive and developed, even if there are sectors where they are more developed. Because if a country in the South tries to improve its production structure to make itself more productive, what happens? Well, usually the US does a coup d'etat, right? And eliminates it, right? And flattens it. Uh, if it tries to develop its uh, production, its productive capacities to make itself more productive and efficient. Right? So this is very important to keep in mind also is that there's a political engineering at multiple levels of uh, uneven development on a world scale, right? So there's also many other mechanisms of, uh, of accumulation on a world scale, for example, the very fact that uh, countries have uh, low wages and unequal agrarian structures and high levels of unemployment in the South, that's structural, whereas in the North, with the agrarian, there's agrarian inequality, but there are higher wages um, and there aren't such labor reserves. This is another aspect of imperialism, that the large labor reserves or people who are unemployed in the global south mean that there's a continuous downwards pressure on wages in the third world. And that, in fact, because the wages are low, then the buying power of people in the south uh, remains low. That means their access to uh, the fruits of humanity's labor and also the resources that are available to humanity, wages represent a claim on what is produced. If those wages are low, then what they can claim is low. And concomitantly, that means more of it can be claimed in the North and consumed in the North. And this is the basis of the imperialist social pact, right? The fact that uh, imperialism in the North, monopoly capital in the North basically makes an implicit or explicit promise to its working classes to provide them a higher degree of access to the world's productive resources, right? I mean, and uh, you, you know, take something like uh, a sector like tourism, right? Where tourism is very much, there's actually a lot of consumption involved in tourism. And that is actually direct producers in the South of uh, food and also of uh, restaurant goods and also of handicrafts. All of that is available to Northern purchasers at extremely low rates because wages are very low in the South, even though actually these are goods, they're not even substitutable, right? There is no uh, vacation in Morocco or Tunisia. Uh, that isn't something that there's a parallel good in the North for. It's actually something that's only produced there, right? So it's not like it's something that, um, uh, you know, that the North could produce, uh, that that's like the comparative advantage of the South. Actually, only the South is able to have those things, but because of the structure of the imperialist price structure and the imperialist wage structure, people in the North have access to those things, right? And this is another part of buy-in to the imperialist social pact. This is why we see imperial, uh, Northern left imperialist support, uh, support for imperialist wars, right? It doesn't come from nowhere. It, it, uh, it's the ideological and political reflection of this structure of production consumption, which is of course encouraged by the Northern monopolies. All right. 
So basically what we see is northern countries, very high consumption lifestyles. Uh, um, we see northern corporations having a lot of profits from this uh, by draining the south, keeping wages there low, uh, and driving in that way uh, the climate catastrophe. Um, and basically, if any government tries to change the arrangement uh, or something like that. And I wanted to get into um, some of the um, uh, proposals that you critique uh, in your book, uh, the Green New Deal proposals uh, that you critique. You already mentioned kind of your skepticism towards green growth and decoupling because of the, the actual decoupling often having more to do with outsourcing of production to other countries like China, like Bangladesh, etc. Um, so I, I wanted to touch upon a few, a few others that you mentioned. Um, for example, this idea that um, we, we can, at least in the mainstream, uh, with new technologies uh, or perhaps with a global vehicle uh, of, of those proposals. Can you explain why? Yeah, so, you know, there's this idea uh, that we can innovate our way out of the climate crisis. Now, the idea of innovation itself and technological development is not a problem at all, right? Uh, technological development is actually uh, central and is actually something that's a shared uh, civilizational inheritance, North and South, right? Um, um, and of course, the Southern role is suppressed in the history, but that's not the point. The point is that there's no one who uh, is sane and is against technology. In fact, no one at all is against technology. This is also important to keep in mind. Even people who pretend to be against, even the extremists who pretend to be against technology are not actually against technology, right? Everyone is in favor of technology because even, uh, you know, e even agro, um, you know, agroforestry or Managed, past, managed landscapes like there were in Brazil or across the pre-settler uh, pre colonial United States. And these reflected a technological system of, um, of land management. So, so everyone is in favor of technology. The question is not uh, pro or anti-technology, right? And in fact, whenever someone claims uh, that someone else is anti-technology, this is how, this is a red flag. You should be like, okay, that person is either misunderstanding the situation or is a liar. Right, because no one is anti-technology. Right, it's categorically rejected across the entire uh, the the entire the entire left and development sphere. Now, the issue is um, what kind of technologies and what what are the merits of technologies, and can we uh, how do we justify the imposition the imposition or development of new technologies, and are technologies socially and technologically neutral, um, or are they uh, embedded or woven into global power? Now, uh, at this point, it, it actually is less than fruitful to speak of technology in the abstract, right? When we want to think about technology in the abstract in relation to the climate crisis, it's a question of saying, okay, these technologies are not socially neutral, and we need to think and have a critical approach to all forms of technology that anyone is discussing. That doesn't mean we reject it. It means, well, it means asking whenever anyone proposes a technological solution or a technological proposal in relation to the climate crisis, it's saying, okay, how are we gonna do it? Who's gonna benefit? Who's gonna lose? Where are the resources gonna come from? Who's gonna benefit from their extraction? Who's gonna pay the cost of their extraction? Um, how effective will that technology be? Is that technology foreclosing other options, right? So it's actually becomes a question no longer about technology, but 
an approach to technology that interrogates specific technologies, right? And so we, we should, as a matter of intellectual and political self-defense, always be asking these questions about any specific technology that's introduced into the conversation when we're dealing not only with climate change, but also with uh, what's called development writ large, right? Whether uh, it's capitalist development or socialist development or any form of development, we need to have a discussion. What is the justification for this specific technology and what is the, or what are the alternatives that aren't being discussed or that should be discussed, right? Now, uh, so it's good to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking a bit in uh, generalities because different technologies, we're gonna immediately ask different questions about them and are well known to be uh, accompanied by specific problems that are specific to those technologies. So to take something that is kind of, in the news or uh, being pushed on, on what's called the left a term. I actually don't like the term the left, right? Um, as, as a reference to like a community of people who supposedly uh, believe in uh, unicorns and utopias and things like that. I, I think it's a term that is, uh, it can be harmful for our political work, but uh, be that as it may, right? So the, the, something like, um, carbon capture and storage, right? Is something that is somehow being discussed on what's called the left, right? Now, uh, why is carbon capture and storage being discussed, right? That's our first question when we say, okay, uh, let's discuss carbon capture and storage. Why is it being discussed? Well, actually carbon capture and storage as a proposal is basically something that's coming um, from the oil companies, right? The oil companies basically say are, are interested in promoting this idea that you can actually vacuum uh, carbon dioxide out of the sky, or you can capture it at the point of production. If you could do that in a theoretical world effectively, then the oil companies and also the whole uh, infrastructure that of uh, capitalist production that's associated with oil production, which is a very large suite of uh, productive industries, right? Uh, much larger than most people think. I mean, most of modern, most of capitalist uh, agriculture, especially in the North, is somehow based in one way or another on uh, on oil and gas. Um, if uh, if this if if we can actually absorb the carbon dioxide directly from it, then this whole kind of infrastructure of uh, so-called uh, capitalist modernity could actually continue, right? So there's a massive interest of the oil companies in kind of promoting this idea that carbon capture and storage is feasible. Um, and that we just need to keep on directing uh, investment towards it. And then it will eventually be able to come online and be uh, either profitable or economically feasible, feasible to, uh, to carry out. Now, this is one thing. It's actually a way of preserving their fixed assets, a lot of both which is uh, pipelines and so forth, but which is also uh, the reserves that they currently hold, right? So then it becomes, okay, then why is it being, you know, so our reflex should be, okay, this discussion is actually being pushed by in order to avoid the more substantive discussion of the shutdown of the Northern petrochemical the, and hydrocarbon companies and uh, a negotiated just transition in the South along with reparations to the Southern countries, which are uh, reliant on fossil fuels, right? That I think is the eco-socialist position, whereas the uh, uh, position which is being kind of infiltrated into eco-socialist thought is that actually carbon capture and storage is feasible and we should hold on to this idea and do it what is called from the left 
so that it's not left to the right. But in fact, realistically, uh, it's just not feasible, right? It's, there's no serious proposals for actually scaling it up. It's not possible. And even people who are kind of ambiguous or ambivalent about it will say, yeah, it's not really, it, there's no way it can occur on, in any way that it would actually have an impact on uh, climate because it would take 50 years for it to scale up enough for it to actually have any kind of impact, right? Not to mention that it's absurdly energy intensive. So you end up using energy to uh, pull carbon dioxide and actually uh, allow for continued uh, burning of fossil fuels or not. But it's like, okay, we actually will, uh, we need to restructure our societies to work on less energy in the first place. So this whole idea is kind of, uh, it's built on a swamp. Um, that's just one example, right? And so we could run through a whole array of technologies. I'm not gonna run through um, a whole array of technologies, although if in the q and if someone wants to ask about them, I'm happy to discuss uh, specific ones. But the point is, once we do that, right, and actually there's a lot of good literature about it that is, is uh, readily accessible, both uh, academic literature and also uh, more kind of popular syntheses of it. Um, uh, both critical uh, analyses of these kind of eco-modernist or uh, kind of high-tech solutions and also uh, lower-tech alternatives. And I kind of use this term low-tech, it's a kind of euphemism um, just to mean these types of technologies that are more decentralized, that are more labor-intensive uh, generally, that could use uh, renewable materials and so forth, but that are still technologies and that uh, could be more amenable to uh, an eco-socialist, a possible eco-socialist civilization, and that those are something that's very important in terms of thinking about the climate crisis as well, rather than just thinking, okay, no, we should just use the capitalist technologies, but we're going to redeploy them as socialists. Right. So we're we're kind of getting to I think uh, a, a, already a sketch of the, the the program that's really necessary. I'm hearing the theme of climate reparations for the colonization of the atmosphere. Uh, I'm hearing of the necessity for sovereignty within the global south um, and and national liberation. Uh, I'm hearing of the necessity because of the dependence of northern consumption on southern extraction of a kind of industrial convergence between the north and the south. Uh, and at the end, you're, you're, you're hinting uh, a lot towards uh, agroecology and I think uh, kind of uh, um, what you mentioned very explicitly in your book, a kind of mass return to uh, artisanry and craftsmanship. Um, you, at some point, I think you even titled it uh, a planet of fields. That, that's how you see uh, an eco-socialist future. Could you, could you sketch that for us? Ooh, that, that's a few questions in one, I think. But to start, uh, it's to think about what kind of, uh, what it, we can take it on multiple levels, right? I mean, at the most general level, I mean, of course, uh, communism and eco-socialism are about um, regulating the human interaction with nature in a kind of permanently stable uh, metabolism, um, avoiding alienating labor, uh, undoing exploitation and so forth, right? That's at the most general and abstract level. Um, at, a, at a slightly more specific level, it's also uh, about global developmental convergence, right? Basically meaning that everybody on earth deserves to have uh, the same quality of life, more or less, as everyone else. I mean, there isn't a reason for that not to be the case, right? And this is uh, also, uh, it's 
what I take to be uh, kind of utopia, uh, the horizon of, uh, of communism and of, of socialist construction, right? That we do not accept that the North should have access to higher levels of what's called development than the South, which includes the, the use of uh, global resources and so forth. So how do you get there, right? This is the question. Uh, for all of us, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I don't uh, delve into the kind of mechanics of political organization about how to get there, but I think there are some fundamental principles about um, how to get there. And so first, this is a question of, uh, of the national question. This goes back to what I was saying in uh, my opening bit is that what's so essential is that uh, because we live in a political world structured through the, the nation state system, uh, we don't have another political world on offer. Um, nation states need to, for the time being, are uh, not the sole, but a primary uh, means for socialist construction and eco-socialist construction. And what this means, especially, is that they uh, need to consummate their national liberation struggles. Now, national liberation has kind of fallen off the agenda of uh, the Western left, I think, a lot. But national liberation was not just about the process of decolonization that ended, um, or that almost ended, or largely ended in, in the 80s, right? No, it was much broader, right? It was about the putting, both putting the national productive resources under popular control. Um, and as Cabral saw it, this meant it was coterminous with socialist planning. Like, he didn't really see a distinction between national liberation and socialist planning uh, because he did not see that there was any role for, uh, that there was any possibility that uh, the capitalist class in the global South could prevent the national productive forces from being used uh, for foreign benefit, right? He saw that there was, inevitably they would uh, lurch or lapse into a neo-colonial system where the domestic productive resources would be used for foreign profit in labor, land, and so forth, right? So he saw national liberation and eco-socialist plan and socialist planning, although he also had an ecological vision. Um, he, he saw these as basically being the same thing. And I think this is totally correct. Now, this kind of has, has two fronts to it, right? I mean, in the South, of course, there's the process of uh, the resistance against uh, both capitalism and imperialism, domestic and foreign capitalism, and also imperialism, um, with different ones, having a different priority at uh, different moments, but all of them being necessary for Southern nations. In the North, of course, we need to resist our own capitalism, but we also need to resist the foreign policy of our own capitalism, which is imperialism, which is preventing or trying to re-usurp or retake control of Southern national productive forces, right? Um, and this is something that is uh, also, I think, not emphasized enough is that, you know, the, the North is constantly violated the South's ability to manage or to change its own social and ecological texture, right? I mean, there's now 500 million people at least, uh, if not many more, living under Western sanctions, right? Which are about uh, the West asserting control over, in a very violent way, over national uh, political, uh, Southern political, um, Southern uh, resources. I mean, of course, there's a huge archipelago of Western military bases. There are wide-scale encirclement, of course, of China and uh, Russia. Um, th there's the colonization of the atmosphere. There's all these things that actually impose a specific obligation on 
Northern people who want to be internationalists um, and who want to think that our eco-socialist movement should also be eco-socialist and internationalist, which means that there's a specific political task that's emanating from our structural location and the global division of labor, but also the global, uh, the, the global system of nation states, which is polarized and imperialist, which means that we need to prevent our governments from uh, forcibly imposing their own preferred uh, monopoly capital uh, texture on the socio-ecologies of the South, right? That is just a fundamental principle. Um, and until, uh, you know, of course, uh, ego, I, I hope and I think eco-socialist planning in the South has to proceed even amidst the failure of Northern movements to actually uh, support Southern self-determination in this broad sense. But nevertheless, this is something that needs to be taken up in a broad scale in order for these movements in the South to not uh, face the kind of dis uh, huge distortions in their own ecological and social development paths that are imposed by imperialism, right? Um, you know, Russia, the Soviet Union, right? and China would have never chosen this degree of industrialization if uh, imperialism was not threatening to obliterate that, right? Which is, then makes it shocking that the, uh, their emissions are then counted against them when, uh, in, in, the, in the tabulations, when in fact these emissions were imposed by Western capitalism itself, which then insists that these emissions are the fault of these Southern countries trying to uh, carry out socialist construction. Now, where this brings us is, is uh, also to the agrarian question and its role in the South and in the North. And here there's, uh, there's uh, parallel and there's non-parallel aspects. I mean, the non-parallel aspect is that the South is, uh, has been underdeveloped, right? This is actually, uh, th this is the current condition of the South. I mean, the South, and it's the definition of the South, basically, it's basically the definition of the periphery, that these are poor states, right, with uh, underdeveloped infrastructure, with massive labor reservoirs, with people living in the streets, with people who are hungry, people without, with inadequate housing, right? This is what it means to be a periphery. This is what it means to be in the global South, you have low wages and so forth. How uh, are these Southern countries going to escape this trap that they're in, right? They've tried a lot of ways. Um, both, uh, you know, and I mean, and I mean, sincerely tried. They've tried a lot of ways. They've tried to build up national capitalisms. They've tried to carry out import substitution industrialization. They carried, uh, tried to carry export oriented industrialization um, on the South Korea model, which was subsequently copied in uh, Brazil, uh, also uh, Tunisia, for example. These all failed, right? Um, the, the, some of them were not meant seriously to carry out development in the first place, but even where they were uh, meant seriously, they failed. And they failed because, for a variety of reasons. In particular, they failed because it's expensive in terms of resources to carry out this industrial path of development. And they didn't probably understand properly that the North carried out its industrial development only because it had massively looted the South, right? Um, because uh, it was able to basically, and this is what the discussion of India was related to earlier um, from Chris, is that it, they were able to develop these massive industrial plants because they were looting uh, all the these natural resources and also labor, basically from the South. So this is uh, the historical legacy of the slave trade. This is uh, the sugar plantations in the Caribbean. This is the uh, cotton. These are the, uh, the spices um, from South Asia and Southeast Asia and so forth. Right, uh, the, these were massive processes of, of looting that the South is not able to do. So it needs to carry out a different uh, path. 
Now, what kind of path is accessible to the South? The basic fact is the South, if it wants to get a surplus to carry out development, right? And that's what development is basically. It's having a surplus and then reinvesting it so that you can increase your productive resources available for your population. That's only can come from agriculture, uh, fundamentally, right? It can't come from anywhere else because where is it gonna come from? You're gonna get a loan or um, are you gonna encourage more people to uh, leave agriculture and go to the cities, and which actually means to go to the slums, to go to the shanty towns and bidonvilles and so forth, right? No, I mean, this is not a recipe for a sustainable future for these countries. It's gonna come from the South. Now, I mean, from the, from the agricultural sector, which means uh, given that uh, most of these countries have fairly uneven agrarian structures as well as export-oriented agrarian structures, they actually need uh, agrarian structures that are fundamentally oriented first to feeding uh, and then a use of the surplus, for example, feeding the industrial sector. And second of all, um, uh, they, uh, for, uh, for, so for, for, for subsistence, and they need a massive agrarian reforms in order to break up uh, the larger states that are fundamentally export-oriented. You know, and you see this, of course, like look at a country like Brazil or Indonesia again, right? Or uh, the Philippines, where people are paid eight cents an hour to pick pineapples for uh, for uh, dough or dough or dough, whatever it is, um, and so forth, right? Uh, th this is a massive process of extraction coming from the southern agrarian sector, which actually could be inward oriented and actually move towards people's development. Now, what is this? First of all, what is this? Uh, how is this related? to us, and I think most of us are, are in the North. Um, I mean, I'm in Tunisia, but um, I'm from the North. Um, how, how is it related? If a country tries to carry out a radical agrarian reform, which is the fundamental basis of uh, popular development, right? There's, uh, there's no other way for countries in the South to carry out a popular or eco-socialist development process. The North will actually uh, try to murder them, right? And this is, what happened in Zimbabwe, right? Uh, Zimbabwe carried out a massive uh, white to black, rich to poor, uh, colonizer to colonized uh, agrarian reform based on really initiated by the popular activity of, of poor black uh, chase, uh, slum dwellers who've been chased from the land by settler colonial invasion, right? And they, took over huge amounts of land, which was then uh, kind of uh, expanded, crystallized, codified, uh, instrumentalized, it doesn't matter, by, by the Zimbabwean government, um, but also uh, pushed along by the Zimbabwean government with all the contradictions of that process. The South just mass imposed massive sanctions on uh, Zimbabwe, massive. Um, and uh, because there isn't uh, a large enough military footprint in Southern Africa, you know, that couldn't go further to, uh, to any form of militarized incursion, but uh, they wrecked the economy. There was massive hyperinflation, right? So Zimbabwe has been suffering under Western sanctions for 20 years. Although this year they had a massive corn harvest with maybe I think a record uh, corn harvest and um, could be breaking out of their isolation. Now, this is an object lesson, right? That if you upset the, uh, the global dispensation of power, which is fundamentally based in a very deep way, much deeper than is usually discussed on um, agrarian inequalities. If you upset that, then the US is, and the EU behind it is gonna try to wipe your country from the face of the earth, right? Which actually reminds us of our obligations in terms of uh, eco-socialist internationalism, that these countries are gonna carry out these processes 
if they can, in messy, complicated ways that, of course, will be rife with things that are uh, either represented to us as problematic or could be problematic because, of course, any process of changing the world is riddled with problems. There's no other way to change the world, right? You can't do it in, an, in a way that doesn't have problems. Um, and that we have to defend it anyway because that is how to change the world. Um, and that when a country does that and carries out a radical change and it's a great infrastructure, that has to be actually defended. Now, another issue that's very important to point out here in terms of the agrarian question is that in fact, all, every uh, radical uh, movement, including the most criminalized radical movements in the world today, I, I mean criminalized by the global north, right? Are in one way or another uh, interacting with the agrarian question, right? Um, the radicalized states of Latin America proposed, didn't implement, but proposed radical agrarian reforms, Bolivia, Venezuela, Ecuador proposed radical agrarian reforms. Cuba has a radical agrarian program. Um, Venezuela in particular uh, had a lot of its agrarian struggle stalled by uh, US uh, paramilitary sent in from its client state, Colombia, um, that uh, murdered hundreds and hundreds of the leading peasant activists in Venezuela. And this is a major, uh, this basically in many ways stalled the class struggle on the Venezuelan countryside and is why the agrarian reform never went deeply enough, right? And this is actually then after the fact activated as a, a way of smearing the Venezuelan governments as not really being committed to agrarian reform while their peasant activists were being murdered. So how you need a class struggle from below for an agrarian reform, right? Um, also Nepal, also the, the Maoists in India, of course, the uh, illegalized Maoists in the Philippines um, uh, are all agitating for serious agrarian reform. And of course, never mind the national liberation questions, uh, both the indigenous peoples in Canada and the United States fighting for national liberation, which is about land, or of course, Palestinians who are fighting for land, or, uh, the land question is very active in South Africa, right? Land is very central to all the struggles of the 21st century, right? Um, and it, it is also the struggles that the US and the EU hate the most are the ones connected to the land because the land is really so essential to uh, the system of global capitalism. Now, um, the, the flip side, uh, and uh, I have been, I'm sorry, I've been answering this question for a while, but it was such a big question. Um, the flip side of this, right, is, what happens um, if the Southern agrarian systems suddenly become much more inward oriented, right? Right now they're very outwards oriented, right? Which actually means massive uh, undernutrition, malnutrition, even starvation in the South. What happens if they're inward oriented? A few things happen. First of all, a lot of goods that people are reliant on the South for are no longer available. Uh, reliant, uh, that means uh, tropical fruits, vegetables um, out of season, when they're available out of season, the fact that we can always get fruits and vegetables in places like the United States and Europe, no matter the time of year, this would not be available in the same way or at all, or in the same quantity, right? Um, if there were these radical agrarian transitions in the South. The other thing is the agrarian labor force in Europe and in the US comes from the South. I mean, there are, the, the strawberry sector of Spain is based on the hyper-exploitation of Moroccan women, right? Um, a lot of the greenhouses or food and vegetable farms of 
the southern half of Italy or all of Italy are, uh, you know, what are called illegal uh, sub-Saharan immigrants, right? Um, and a lot of the German and uh, I don't I don't know the Dutch actually, but a lot of the German um, and UK uh, fruit and vegetable production is based on bringing people in from devastated post-Soviet uh, Eastern European countries like Romania. I mean, and also elsewhere in the world, but right. So there's a there's a division of labor. There's a division of labor, and it's based on imperial power relations that makes that labor available. Now, that I, you know, and I haven't even gotten to the climate question, as a, the specific climate question as it relates to this. Now, what that means is that uh, some kind of larger proportion of southern of northern labor, it could just be a few percentage points higher, would have to be devoted to agriculture. Right now, this is something that's really shocking to. Uh, you know, the, a lot of the academics who decide what thoughts are appropriate to think. They're like, how dare you? They're like, how dare you propose that like two more percent of people in the North should actually be involved in agriculture? And I'm like, well, okay. If that's the price we have to pay, I don't know if it's a price, but like if if that's this, if that's the thing that has to change to have an eco-socialist world, then like two or three percent is a really small uh, number of people or of uh, national labor hours that would have to be devoted to agriculture in order to have uh, worldwide developmental convergence. Like that's a really great, uh, I think that's a great outcome. Suppose it's even 10% of Northern labor hours, 8% would have to be devoted to agriculture. That's not that much, right? Let's say a person who would have to rotate into agricultural work once a, month, uh, once a, once a year for a month. There's nothing, right? For, for a totally different world, right? So this is something that actually people get the most annoyed about. I'm like, well, it's like the least thing to be the least annoyed about. It's like, not that hard, you know, we would be healthier too. Um, now, uh, I'm sorry, I, I want to get just quickly to the last point about how it directs connectly to, uh, how it connects directly to the ecological question. I mean, agriculture is the major sector is one of the major sectors for greenhouse gas emissions, right? It's somewhere between, it depends how it's calculated, but the current system of kind of industrialized capitalist farming is carbon emitting all along the supply chain. It's carbon emitting uh, in terms of the destruction of soil itself. It's carbon emitting in terms of the actual physical production process of crops, for example, of corn, of uh, fruits, vegetables. It's extremely energy intensive. It actually, we are, the more calories are used uh, to grow the crop than actually you get from the crop. Um, then the transportation is energy intensive. The packaging is energy intensive. The harvesting is energy intensive. The processing is energy intensive. All of that is between 21 and 37%. Now, in principle, uh, agriculture should be a negative carbon sector, right? A good agriculture stores carbon in the soil. We don't really know how much. Anyone who's telling you that we really know how much is totally lying to you because we have no idea because um, the science, again, is, is poorly developed. And again, this reflects uh, the kind of capitalist imperialist decision about what science gets developed and what doesn't get developed. But we do know that uh, some kind of percentage, I mean, some people have calculated, say that 10% of overall US emissions, that amount of carbon could be stored every year through an agroecological transition of the US farming system. Sure, it's similar numbers in, uh, in, in Europe and elsewhere. Um, it, it could be lower actually in, uh, in the global south because more of their, agri their agricultural systems are less uh, technologically intensive. What that means is actually that agriculture is a keystone sector for the global uh, and a global eco-social transition. It has to be 
ecological agriculture. And, and in turn, we, we solve a lot of problems, right? This is what's good is that uh, changing one thing actually solves a lot of problems rather than uh, sows a lot of problems. And I think this is very critical in terms of uh, restructuring our world is that it's not just emissions, right? It's also related to uh, the abuse of animals in uh, industrialized factory farming, right? This would stop under agroecology. It doesn't mean, I'm not in favor of a global veganist approach, but it, it does mean that there would be uh, much more attention to the welfare of animals in the farming process than be integrated into farms. Uh, it also means that we would uh, avoid the problem of soil erosion. It also means that this problem of an overuse of, uh, of fertilizers with uh, resultant nitrogen runoff and the pollution of waterways, this would also stop, right? So you would have things like you have the algal bloom in the Gulf of Mexico. You'd also produce healthier food using agroecological uh, forms of production, right? You have the nutrient profile of these foods is far, far better than from the pesticide uh, monocropping that is currently dominating. So you actually solve dozens of problems with a transition to agroecology, north and south, so long as it's nested in this national liberation framework uh, that I was talking about earlier. Thank you so much, uh, Max. Uh, it was a long response, but it, it was a great summary of, of, of the main proposals in your, in your book. So uh, thanks a lot for that. Um, we went a little over time with this part um, part of our sessions. So I want to open up the floor now also uh, to questions from the audience. So yeah, if anyone has a question, feel free to... Um, if there isn't, that's fine too, actually. Uh, didn't didn't even come close to asking everything I wanted to ask. Um, yeah, I'm, so, I'm, su I'm super sorry. Uh, it was just like that was the most important part of the book, so I just had to. Uh, <laughs> I just had to answer. A you're totally right. You're totally right. No, no, actually, the long answer was, was I was happy with it because it kind of tackled multiple questions, <laughs> uh, some of them that I didn't ask yet. So that was great. Uh, I, I, I am getting a, a question now from um, from another Max, which is my brother, and he's also an Arles. Um, uh, and he's asking, since in the Western world, anti-imperialism as a legitimate political struggle, uh, how can we find language to speak to the bigger uh, Sorry, he made a typo. He says, since in the Western uh, world, anti-imperialism has lost legitimacy as a political struggle, how can we find language to speak to bigger left audiences? This is, this is, uh, this is so tricky, right? I mean, you know, I, I, don't, know the, I don't know the kind of um, situation as well in Europe. I know it better in, in the US and of course the Arab region as well. But I mean, it seems to me that one of the major problems of speaking about anti-imperialism is not, and, and maybe uh, Max, maybe you have a different perspective on this, but my perspective is, um, is, more, is more that you, you're abused. Not that it's lost legitimacy. I mean, I think it's very popular. It's much more popular than it was 10 years ago, 11 years ago, right? Um, when I think there was really a concerted effort to just evaporate uh, anti-imperialism um, as, a, as a political position. Um, 
you know, I don't know that a book like mine could have even been published uh, eight years ago. Maybe, but I don't know. And I, and I don't think it would have found an audience, right? Now, it, at least in the US, it's quite the opposite. Sometimes people are like, what is this reformist crap that you're asking me to read, right? They're like, they're like what is this? You, you're proposing an imperialist Green New Deal for the planet? And I'm like, no, no, that's, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm like, just like read a, read a sentence of it. It's not, that's not the project here, right? So this is the reaction I get. Um, so this is part of it is I think uh, being uh, in, in community where you have people who will support you against when you're abused, not if you're abused, because uh, you're speaking against the dominant ideology, including on the left, you're gonna get abused. Um, but uh, I think people are actually receptive to it. That, that's my impression, first of all. Um, I, and I think, you know, I, I don't think the imperialist perspective has an answer to any of our questions, right? Including the imperialist left perspective. I mean, uh, you know, I think uh, so. The 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 reaction is to silence it, to, and the the reason that people want to silence it is precisely because they know it will have resonance, right? I mean, I think if you tell people, I want countries to be able to have a sovereign control over their productive resources. And I want to take political action where I live to help other countries do that, which doesn't mean I approve of everything about the internal texture of those countries and how they govern themselves. But I'm not going to talk about it that much because I don't want to contribute to the atmosphere of demonization. What, you know, who's going to disagree with that in a serious way? Right, it can't be disagreed with in a serious way. So people say you're an apologist for Bashar, you're an apologist for Putin, you're an apologist. Um, I don't know which other guys they want they want us to be apologists for, whatever. Um, so I think it, it's more about finding a kind of infrastructure from which you can speak out rather than trying to push it. And you know. Um, Yeah, I mean, and I, and I think language will be, you know, I think uh, language, so it's also about political speech and language. And, you know, I think on the one hand, that's very local and even even intimate, like, who are you talking to? And how, how do you want to try and move them? And it's also like national, I mean, there's a national, you know, discourses and political ways of speaking and ways that are convincing people in distinct uh, political cultures, which are distinct in different countries. And so, I think that's something to figure out. But I think the first thing, I think maybe the most important thing is to drop this idea um, that anti-imperialism is uh, has lost legitimacy and say, no, this is this is a correct approach to, to how to make the world a decent place for everybody. Um, and, and, uh, and that has an intrinsic legitimacy. And the problem of reaching bigger left audiences it's not a question of legitimacy in a sense, but it's a question of power right? and uh, abuse. Thanks, Max. Um, so if anyone's jump in, just feel free. Uh, otherwise, I'm just gonna go ahead and, um, and, uh, and, and also ask a question myself. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking also of this um, difficulty of anti-imperialist organizing in the global north, 
because as you mentioned, there is this kind of uh, benefiting as well of this, this complicity uh, within the global north of the middle class, their consumption lifestyle uh, with imperialism. So um, one thing that uh, I, I read in your book and I thought perhaps could, could be helpful um, is uh, you define capitalism as a si system for the production of waste. Um, and um, basically, I, I think this kind of relates to uh, that a lot of things are being done within capitalism that cost a lot of resources and energy, but that don't actually give a lot of results. I'm thinking of comparing the healthcare in the US to Cuba, for example. Um, and I'm, I'm just thinking, could you explain that, that sentence more? Like, what do you mean by capitalism as a system of waste? And could that be an opening uh, for solidarity work between the global north and the south, if that means that their anti-imperialism and overthrowing capitalism does not mean that they uh, need a steep drop in their living standards. Right. So, I mean, I, there, there's multiple angles to, to this language. I mean, some of it is something I picked up from, uh, from Ali Kaji, who is a Lebanese anti-imperialist economist, and I strongly encourage everybody to read his work. Absolutely fundamental. One of his most basic points that I think has been is the hardest to grasp and has been the least uh, well received in, in Western circles is that the whole process of so-called capitalist progress increases in productivity. All of this, right? Uh, it hasn't like accidentally, uh, and this whole idea of the accumulation wealth and value, right? This whole historical process has been based on, you know, murdering 500 million or billion people, right? Uh, actually killing them, right? In the process of settler colonization, the slave trade, the wars, the imperialist wars, the fascist wars. These are not external to the historical process of production and accumulation, right? They're actually internal to it, right? So what has been wasted is, all of these lives. And also uh, it's possible the future has been wasted, right? We don't know, uh, you know, we still don't know what kind of human civilizations will make their way out from the crisis of climate change, right? That remains to be seen. So on this broad, broad kind of historical, macro social uh, and, and economic level, this is the type of waste I'm talking about, right? So this kind of upends this notion that capitalism is a uniquely productive system for the development of the productive forces. No, like every time, you know, you, you developed, uh, you know, the cost of developing uh, the automobile was, was the demographic destruction of Africa through the slave trade. Like these were not separate processes, right? These were not, you can't, you, you can't dare remove one them from one another. Uh, it's not like sour grapes it's saying, okay, this is capitalism. This is why capitalism should be superseded at any given historical moment, demands to be abolished, right? Because this is intrinsic to it. The only time it wasn't intrinsic to it is when it was being checked by communism, right? Um, when first the Soviet Union and then really uh, when China came on the stage, capitalism was checked and had to actually orient itself much more to the production of use values, including use values for the Western working classes. Um, and then this is when the ecological crisis really took off, right? And then we had a different type of waste that is being produced. I mean, it's um, the, um, 
the, the different type of waste is being produced is the destruction of the environment. The absolute ravaging and destruction of the human environment is uh, a fundamental part of capitalist production. Again, it is not separate. It's not an externality. It's not something that will be dealt with. It's not uh, an accidental thing. It is actually an intrinsic part of the process of uh, accumulation on a world scale in the modern period is the destruction of the environment. These are just, it's the other side of the coin, just that side of the coin is not visible, right? So this is another aspect of the production of waste. Now, uh, how, how can this be made legible, I think, to Western working classes or, or Western middle classes, right? I think one fundamental aspect is this is, this is the way the world needs to change so that uh, our kids uh, or our future kids have a nice planet to live on and that they can share that nice planet with, uh, the children of people in the rest of the world without having being engaged in brutal violent wars all the time right i mean again like you know i'm not against humanistic messaging um i think it's very important and i think it's the fact that it's what we're saying that this perspective is true and correct um and that's why it gets abused right that's why it has to be delegitimized precisely because it's true right so it's about saying okay these are the changes that have to be made um, in one sense, uh, in, in the broader sense of uh, not wasting the planet. And then there's the more immediate sense, like what kind of life do you think about the life that people actually have in the world we live in? I mean, the food we eat is extremely, is waste, right? It's not nutritious. There's obesity epidemics, there's diabetes epidemics. Above all, there's cancer epidemics. This is intimately linked to the low quality food consumed uh, uh, and produced by monopoly imperialist corporations in the wealthy industrialized West is eating fundamentally unhealthy food, right? At the most basic level, right? I mean, never mind uh, the amount of pollutants, never mind the microplastics, never mind the fact that uh, our technology really doesn't work. It's not designed to work. I mean, stuff works less well than it used to. We have to get new stuff all the time. It breaks all the time. Um, you know, a lot of the new housing that's produced is very uh, is shoddy and falls apart, right? Never mind the healthcare system is absolute atrocity. I mean, it's not, you guys lost your socialized healthcare to some extent also, right? You pay part of, you say, I pay a part of my salary for uh, healthcare. It's not socialized anymore. It's not free. You don't even have dental insurance. <laughs> in the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest countries in the entire world, you have to pay extra to get your teeth taken care of. This is a barbaric way of organizing the society, right? Um, and there are sufficient resources on the planet, sufficient productive resources for everybody to have access to more than basic fundamental social needs uh, guaranteed as a condition of living on the planet to be produced on a permanently ecological basis. Um, and this is the argument to people, right? That, that our system is premised uh, on uh, both accumulation on a world scale and the West, even the Western, um, the Western social, pseudo social democratic or decaying social democratic uh, class pact is premised on a, a huge amounts of waste that are built into the system because of capitalist irrationality, the amount of cars that are produced and so forth and used in lieu of mass public transportation and actually redesigning cities. Um, and, uh, you know, I go a lot into other aspects of this where I, um, in my, the chapter of the world we wish to see. Um, uh, where I talk a lot about different ways of organizing planning, including different ways of organizing industrial production, um, 
thinking about qualitative use value instead of like the quantity of things available to us. I mean, and this includes things like furniture, right? Or desks, like why are we have plastic and metal desks when those are very energy intensive instead of wooden desks, right? In fact, if you look at what uh, the wealthy classes generally demand uh, for their consumption in the global north, people want handmade uh, furniture, right? That's generally made of wood, right? This is just a fact. This is what this is what the people with the most social power in the society want. Okay, this is actually a very ecologically sustainable in a certain sense. It's just labor intensive, right? So this is based on a system where they have access to enough of humanity's uh, social labor in order to be able to get a certain type of actually, in some sense, ecologically sustainable product for themselves. Okay, how can that be? Can that be generalized? And then what are the mechanics of that? So I think it can be generalized. Um, I just think you need to be able to organize production on a socialist basis in order for that in some way or another uh, to be generalized, right? And this is what, also what I'm talking about and that uh, uh, when we're talking about changes rather than uh, changes in um, you know, what um, some of the, these German fellows called, uh, Viennese fellows called the, the imperial way of living, uh, we're talking about changes rather than uh, destruction or leveling. Uh, of Western, uh, Western consumption. It's just gonna be a different world. And I think, you know, we tell people it isn't gonna be a worse one and it will be one that uh, ensures the future. That, that would have been a very uh, hopeful note to end on, but we have four minutes left and I got one question uh, from uh, Chatuleo. Um, and uh, yeah, she thanks you for your input and insights. Uh, and her question is, uh, don't you want technological solutions for climate change? Um, your answer is very helpful. Thanks for that. So I, I, I think um, she wants you to elaborate a little bit more about uh, why you're critical of um, technical, technological, the idea that we can kind of get our way out through technological solutions to climate change. Yeah, so I think, again, I think the first thing is, of course, we want technological solutions. We just want a critical discussion about the nature of those technological solutions, right? So that, uh, this is what I'm saying is that we agree. We want solutions that involve technology, technological changes to the climate crisis. We just want to interrogate which technologies will be the solutions and to make sure that... Uh, they lead to a better world for everybody. That's the bottom line. Uh, you know, when it gets to specifics, then we have to both, uh, we have to learn about the specifics, right? This is a, a necessary part of our collective education, right? And we know that, for example, there are serious issues with where wind power gets cited and uh, where the lithium for batteries comes from, right? These are serious issues and we can learn about them to the extent possible, right? Uh, and to the extent we're interested in. And, um, and need to, right? Uh, but it's just about, it, it's never about rejecting technolo technological solutions. It's which technological solutions are, uh, reflect the values for the world we wish to see. Yeah, and I think something like agroecology, of course, um, it's also a technology, it's an ancestral technology about how to take care of the land. It might just uh, uh, involve huge machines uh, but that doesn't mean it's not technology, of course. Um, okay, I, um, we're almost out of time, so I want to wrap up here. Um, 
and uh, I want to thank you very much, Max, for joining us uh, for what I think was a very insightful and fruitful discussion. Um, I just want to um, also thank everyone for joining uh, and shortly mention that uh, we're a volunteer organization with Arles. So um, if you want to donate, there will be um, there will be a ticky sent, I think, to uh, everybody who signed up for this. Uh, it's completely optional. You can you can decide how much you want to donate or if you want to donate. Um, and um, and that's it for the 14th decolonial learning session. And uh, thank you everyone everyone for joining. Um, you can follow our website, of course, for more sessions. You can also watch all the previous ones back. This one's also recorded, so we will post it uh, if you want to share it with friends or anybody who uh, missed it. Um, and finally, um, if you want to, you know, stay in the Zoom for a little bit and informally chat uh, afterwards, it's fine too. I think we'll leave it open for a few minutes. And uh, and that's it. Thank you everyone. Thanks, everybody.